we stand on the other side of Easter. God's power is so powerfully released in the man Jesus that he's raised from the dead and the tomb stands empty. And we as God's people stand, as it were, in front of an empty tomb with the whole world before us. An adventure awaits. And the question is simply this, how are we going to spend our freedom? How are we going to spend our freedom? And so many of us, we, we get lost at just this point. Individuals or even institutionally as churches, we're lost at this point. We don't know what to do with our freedom. And the reason we don't know what we, to do with our freedom is because nobody's adequately explained what our freedom is for, what the Christian life, the life of following Jesus might look like. You see, we're told that once we're at the tomb, we need to get straight into the university. We need to learn some things. We need to get some content in our brains. Because once we think the right thoughts, we'll naturally then do the right stuff. That the Christian life just isn't like that. It's not, it's not something you can study in the academy. It's, as Richard Foster says, salvation is a life. It's an adventure. It's something you have to live. Brian and Jenny talked about this last week, didn't they? They said that uh, Jesus in John's gospel, John chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he, and he gives it. He gives that explanation of his mission and his identity in that order for a reason. He is firstly the way, that is, uh, to follow him, to be about Jesus' business, is first to commit yourself to a way of life. And it's only when you do that that you then experience him as the truth. And of course, as he says, the truth sets you free. And you experience life in all its fullness. And so many of us miss life in all its fullness because we try and reverse the first two. We try and learn the right things, thinking that that right content might lead us into life. We're on the edge of the tomb. The, the, the tomb is open. The grave is empty. What are we going to do with our freedom? G.K. Chesterton said this. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. But here we are with resurrection power, awaiting Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is given to the church. We have these two advantages Behind us, what are we going to do with our freedom? How are we going to spend our freedom? The answer is we need to spend it by following in the footsteps of Jesus. This is the way. He is the way. And he has given us a way, a set of practices and pathways through which we can experience the fullness of life. If only we'd commit ourselves to following in his way. So how do we find his way? How can we follow him on his way? This is what we read, Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who's heard this scripture before? Some of you are lying. 
You've heard it, and your hands aren't up. We've all, if we've been in the church at least, for any period of time we've heard this. If you're new, this is new to you. But for most of us who've been around, we've heard this scripture before. If you're a baby boomer here, you have had this. You've had this written on a bookmark in your Bible. If you're a baby boomer here and you're in a car, you have a bumper sticker. And on the bumper sticker, it has this written on it. If you're a millennial here, you have this tattooed. (laughs) In Greek. (laughs) On the inside of your bicep, or at the very least, you have already or are committing yourself to Instagramming it later with a picture of a beach, a serene beach. Don't pretend you're not like the boomers, millennials. You didn't invent that wheel. You're just reinventing it. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What's Jesus saying? The first thing is he's saying, come to me. This is an invitation before it's anything else. It's not a command. It's an invitation. Carries a sense of command, but it's an invitation. And the invitation is to come to Jesus. This is the Christian life. In its entirety in this phrase come to me Jesus has said these words in slightly different language which basically said come follow me to his disciples already Matthew 4 we see that we see that in all the gospels Jesus calling his disciples and what he's calling them to is life with him life with Jesus if you want the Christian life in three words there it is life with Jesus That's what it's about. He calls them to come to him, not primarily to learn a set of doctrines or propositions, though content is not irrelevant. But first and foremost, not to learn a a set of doctrines or even processes, but to familiarize themselves with a person. And not just any person. The greatest person who's ever lived. Even secular historians recognize that. That this man, Jesus, had something about him that could not be described by adding up the sum of the parts. That this man was unique. He was totally unique. That his teaching was so deeply profound that he captured the essence of what it was to be human. That he didn't just capture it and teach it, he lived it. He redefined. You know, our culture is the way it is because of Jesus. We understand concepts like humility and service to be of value because of Jesus. These things were never seen as being good at the time of Jesus in the Roman world, certainly. But Jesus redefined the culture through the way that he lived. The sheer force of his life has shaped the culture that 2,000 years later we're still living in. Even our political concepts, democracy, the fact that every person should have a say. Jesus embodies that. So powerfully, he goes to the least, the lost, the last, the people who would never have a vote or even a voice. And he gives them a voice. What an extraordinary person. And it's that person that says to these people, to you and I this morning, come to me. Come to me. What an invitation. This is an invitation to a life lived in the manifest presence of God. Every day, every moment in his presence. Come to me. Who's the promise given to? I love this bit. Oh, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are weary and burdened, come to me. Jesus extends the promise to the ones who are weary, to the ones who are burdened. Who could forget 
who saw it, the picture of the Ajax defense. Just this last week when Lucas Moura slotted in <laughs> the final goal to win Tottenham the game and look at them, broken, weary. All of a sudden, amen. All of a sudden, after 90 minutes of exertion, the, the, the force, the, the, the strength just drains from them and there they are, weary. Weary after defeat, but sometimes we can be weary after victory. We've expended ourselves so fully, maybe beyond what God was even asking us to, and we are weary. We come to our greatest successes to the end of them, and we think, is that all there is? We're winning, and yet we just feel like the victory is hollow. And Jesus says to those people who are weary, come to me. But not just the weary to the burdened. To the burdened. I, burden is an image. It's an image here of somebody who's carrying a great load. Too big for them to bear. Their, bow, their back is bent, bowed under the weight of it. Could be the burden of a relationship. Could be the burden of racial injustice. Could be the burden of bullying and hatred that you've carried. Could be any burden. Those people, the burden, Jesus says, come to me. Could be the burden of your own brokenness, your own sin, the weight of your own sin that you're carrying around. And Jesus says to you, if that's you, come to me. Don't fix yourself. Just come as you are. Come to me. You who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come if you're burdened. I've been reading Lord of the Rings. Anybody read Lord of the Rings? Okay, we've got some in the midst. You know, if you've seen the films, you, you get this too, but the, it doesn't come across maybe so well in the films, but the weight that Frodo carries with Samwise, the weight that he carries, carrying this ring, it, the burden is so heavy that it breaks him, and he's never the same. And they lay down once the ring's in, been cast into the fire by Gollum in Mount Doom. That was a spoiler. I do apologize. <laughs> The story's been in the public domain for 60 or 70 years, but there we go. <laughs> uh, write your complaint on the back of the survey you just filled out. And they sit down on the edge of success in Mount Dune, and the burden has changed them. They're weary, they're burdened. The weight of weariness and burden leads us to a place of exhaustion, and Jesus says to us, come to me. We all get exhausted, don't we? Some of you know, I have four children. Uh, with Amy, uh, my wife, we lead this church. It's the greatest joy outside of, honestly, our friendship with God, with each other, and our family is being a part of this community. We love it. We love you guys. We just think you're amazing. We really do. We just can't believe that we've, we've become part of a community like this. Just think it's fantastic. Can't, we just never imagined we'd be part of a church as wonderful as this one, let alone be involved in, in shepherding it and stewarding it. Stewarding it. It's amazing. We have, on top of all that, we have four kids. For some reason, uh, a couple of years ago, we thought we'd add a dog to the mix. And life can be weighty. Life can be busy for us. Four children alone is hard work. Jim Gaffigan, some of you may know him. He's an American comedian, a brilliant comedian. A few years ago, he told a joke. He said, so if you want to know what it's like having four kids, imagine you're drowning. 
and then somebody hands you a baby. That's, that's kind of what it's like at times. You may not have four children, but you're likely exhausted. If you live in the modern world, you know, we live after the invention of something called electricity. And what electricity meant was that you, you, when it went dark, you didn't have to go to bed. You could turn the lights on and you could pretend as if it was day. Carry on, keep working, stay in your office till 9 p.m. Just, you know, extend the working day. And if that wasn't enough, we're, we have the internet and some of you are just waking up to this, but there's this thing called the internet. And it means that you can work every hour that God sends. Every hour. And even when you're not working, you know, you go to bed with your significant other, you know, your iPhone. <laughs> you know, I had a friend. This is brilliant. I had a friend. This is back in California. This is in the early days of iPhones. And she had an iPhone at this point for a couple of years. And somebody asked her to turn it off. And she said, I, I don't know how. It never occurred to her, and how many times do you turn your phone off? It never occurred to her that she might need to turn her phone off. You know, she just charged it at night. Charged it when it needed to. And that kind of life with infinite demands and infinite expectations, the expectations that poured into us by what we see in social media. And the gap that's created between the lives we lead and the lives that we think we should be leading creates exhaustion. We all live in that exhaustion today. This promise is for us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. And I will give you rest. Rest. Just close your eyes. This isn't going to be difficult to imagine with a sun as it is today. You're on a beach. It's Southern California. Even just by thinking about it, you're getting a suntan. The waves are rolling in. And you're alone on the beach. It's just you. Can you feel the rest? How much is that like your life? Yeah. And that the promise of rest is for those of us who don't get to live in that way. And scripture is full of promises about rest. You know, God begins in the beginning creating and even God takes a rest. A Sabbath day, a rest from his work. And what does he rest for? He rests, I think, primarily to enjoy what he's made. He's probably not tired never going to come to the end of his strength, but he just wants to enjoy what he's made. God rests, and pretty early in the Bible, we, well, we see he creates a garden, Eden, which means delight for Adam and Eve to enjoy it, to work, yes, name the animals, till the ground, and also to rest, to delight, to enjoy one another, and to enjoy the garden. And then in Exodus, we have God giving Israel the laws. He's saying, look, now you're free. Now I've set you free. This is the way you should live. Sabbath. Rest. Enjoy my rest. Surely that's the most broken of all the commandments. Isn't it? The commandment to rest. In the Gospels we see Jesus, even though he had a short time scale to do his work, he rests. 
And he calls his disciples to share in his rest. An infinite need before him, three years to minister. And he takes a break, he takes a rest. And in the book of Revelation, we've sung about it this morning, we see uh, a new garden, a garden city created for us to enjoy God and to find eternal rest with him. So how can we find this rest? This is the promise, rest, shalom, peace, joy, all of that stuff. How do we find it? This is where it gets a little surprising. Jesus says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Some, are thinking, some of you are thinking of smashing eggs. That's not the kind of yoke we're thinking about. We're talking about a farming contraption. I think we have a picture. Perhaps the next slide. There's George and I. Uh, <laughs> Take my yoke upon you. This is a farming contraption. It's the thing that these two oxen are wearing around their necks. And it binds two animals together, combining their collective potential to accomplish the task for which they were made. These two brute beasts, 550 kilograms of muscle, these two are joined together and because they're joined together, their pulling power, if you like, is that much stronger. And because of this yoke around them, they can be guided and directed into the right direction. Their powers are combined. This is what Jesus is saying. And, and the confusing thing for us, because he's talked about rest, is that this is clearly an image of work. And not just work, but heavy work. They'd be pulling a plow, and that plow would be heavy, and it would be uh, pulling and tearing up the ground behind it so that seed could be scattered and fruit could be grown. This is hard work. What does it have to do with rest? Well, the key is finding out what they're yoked to. Rather, who they're yoked to. One ox. Who's the ox yoked to? This concept of the yoke was used almost technically there's a technical term around the time of Jesus, and it, and it would mean your yoke. Somebody's yoke would be their teaching. And, and one of the major groups that were around shaping the sort of religious and political landscape of Israel at the time were called the Pharisees. You'll have heard of them probably if you've read the Bible, because Jesus got into a load of scraps with them at different times. And the Pharisees had a yoke. Their yoke was their teaching. And they were very serious about following the law. They believed that if all Israel followed the law perfectly for just one day, then the kingdom of God would come. And so it made them very Pharisaic. It made them very uh, concerned about the exact way in which the law should be followed. As for legalistic righteousness, as Paul would say later in Philippians, faultless. Their mission, their aim was to be flawless in terms of following Torah, the law. There were 613 commands in the Jewish law, and the Pharisees added a further 1,500 of oral tradition. If you like, a fence around it so that they wouldn't even get near to breaking the commands. That's how serious they were. And their yoke, as Jesus could see all around him, led to one of two responses. It either led to this self-righteousness. I'm doing it. I'm smashing it. I am fulfilling the law. What have you done today? Today, I have perfectly fulfilled the requirements of Torah. And to some, it did the opposite. 
fail again. I'm exhausted. I can't manage this burden, this yoke. That's what the yoke of the Pharisees did. We live with a yoke on us too. Our culture has a yoke, and, uh, and, the, and the definition, I suppose, the description of our culture is no yoke. It may surprise you to hear this. Our culture is not yoked to legalistic righteousness. We've taken the Torah and we've whoo, thrown it out the door. What are we yoked to? We're yoked to a notion of freedom. Our yoke. The burden we carry, what we're yoked to is the idea that you must at all costs express yourself. The only way you can possibly damage yourself is to limit yourself, to limit your inner desires, you must, which you must never do. You're free, you must live free. And it's like, the image, though, is those chimpanzees standing at the door, running out and tearing the place up. And tearing themselves up in the process. And though our culture promises freedom, what we see is enslavement, not to the law, but to the self. Because when you follow yourself, what you get is yourself. And typically, this is described by what we know now as addiction. We're addicted. We're addicted to the gods that we worship, the God of pleasure. That's the yoke. Our culture promises us freedom and delivers slavery. And there's another yoke, isn't there? The yoke of Jesus. And he... Isn't like the Pharisees looking for more, 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 more. He's not like the culture setting us free to determine our own way. He's saying, no, come, come. I've got a space by my side. There's a yoke that you can wear. Come, yoke yourself to me. I know the way. I'll give you rest. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul and leads me in right paths for his name's sake even though I walk through the darkest valley you're with me your rod and your staff they comfort me you prepare I fear no evil for you're with me your rod and your staff they comfort me you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies my cup overflows you anoint my head with oil Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Do you see Jesus, the one who calls us to be yoked to him, is the good shepherd? He's not going to lead us where the culture leads us. He's not going to lead us where the Pharisee leads us. He doesn't want to lead us to exhaustion or addiction. He wants to lead us to peace, to freedom, to grace, to mercy. Because, as it says here, he's gentle and humble in heart. You know, that second word, humble in heart, it's, it's strange. I looked it up. One way of looking at it is the word depressed. Many people say he's, he's lowly. He's lowly in heart. That's mean he's not, he's not proud. He's not puffed up. Which is a word we don't use much. He's not self-aggrandizing. He's not making a big deal of himself. He, he's willing to diminish himself. You know, he's willing to stand in a yoke with you. 
He's willing to be yoked. He doesn't need to wear a yoke. He's willing to be yoked so that you could be free. That's what he's willing to do. He's gentle, he's meek, he's humble. The Lord of the universe, the one that made the ox, is willing to submit to a yoke. He's willing to submit to the the cross for you. The Lord is my shepherd. And his yoke leads us to life. You know, just recently, coming up to the Easter holidays, we did the fast and pray thing, didn't we, over Lent? And for me, it was a really powerful time in some ways. I've got to be honest with you, it was exhausting. I think partly it was a spiritual thing, a real commitment, again, to sort of seeking God. And, and you know, it's not, sometimes it's easy to sort of do that in the wrong way, isn't it? Uh, and I came, to, I came to our holiday, we went on a holiday just the week before Holy Week, and we went as a family, had a, a great week, but Amy and I honestly arrived running on fumes. And I'd been ill at that point for, not like majorly ill, just a, I had some kind of virus that I just couldn't kick, I couldn't shake it. I felt physically exhausted. I felt I had nothing left to offer. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't, interestingly enough, I couldn't run. Now, some of you know I'm not a serious runner by any means. We have, we have iron men and women in this congregation. <laughs> I don't want to be yoked to you. But I, I, it's, part, it's become part of my rhythm of sort of replenishment and, and exercise. And for three weeks, I just couldn't run. I couldn't get out the door. Just even the thought of it was exhausting to me. I couldn't manage it. I just couldn't go there. And uh, I'd expected to go on this holiday and do loads of running. One of the places we were staying is right by a canal, and I'd been on a run there before. It's beautiful. But it's just going to be a really replenishing week. And then the week came, and I couldn't get out the door. Put my running stuff on once or twice. So I was like, I can't even get out. I can't break stride. And I did, on the last morning, went to the canal for a walk. And I just felt the Lord reminding me of a scripture. And you've uh, probably heard it if you've been... Uh, in the Old Testament, that talks one of the, again, the classic promises from Isaiah 40. Even youths will faint and be weary. The young will fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll sh- they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I was reminded of that scripture, and I was like, Lord, what does that mean for me? I'm exhausted. I've been working hard for you. We came here two years ago, and ever since, I've just given you everything. I've gone for it, Lord. And I'm exhausted. I don't know what it looks like to go on from here. They've heard all my best sermons, Lord. They've heard the same sermon for the last two years. I don't know if they've noticed yet. (laughs) But they will soon, Lord. There must be more for me to say. (laughs) I'm exhausted, God. And I just heard a voice. The still small voice. I knew it was the Holy Spirit. He said, Johnny, this is a time to walk and not to run. This is a time to walk and not run. You've wearied yourself. I didn't see it as a rebuke. I saw it as an invitation. You've wearied yourself. You've given your best. It's a time to go beyond your best. You trust me. Will you walk with me? See, I've become exhausted. I've become burdened. The burden I carry, and this, just so we're doing vulnerability, this is the this is the hardest thing, I think, in, in church leadership, I've found. It's, it's, not the, it's not the work. 
It's the temptation to take on the burden that belongs only to God. The burden for what will happen, the outcome. The burden for what this is going to be. You know, we've heard all these prophetic pictures and signs and stories of what God's going to do here. It's very easy, very subtle, but very easy as those involved in leadership to say, it must be my responsibility to do that. That's the burden, the weariness comes when we step outside of our lane. We take on a, a project or a something that's not for us. We recognize that, you know what? We've got to recognize that there's the very few things that I can do well here. And there are very few things I've been called to do well here. And if I step outside the bounds of what I'm called to do, I'm in your territory. All we must do is run the race marked out for us. All we do is yoke ourselves to Jesus and ask him, what is it you're calling me to do? Jesus had a better way. You see, the, the way that the ox works, if we can go back to that picture, what would happen is that you would pair a younger more, perhaps, enthusiastic, hardworking, 35-year-old, young, <laughs> ox. With an older, wiser ox. You've seen it all. I've seen your type before. I know you're going to tear out the gate and burn out in two years. You'd pair the younger, enthusiastic ox with the older head, the wiser ox. Why? Because the older, wiser ox knew that knows the pace required to sustain the work. The wiser ox, in this case, Jesus, knows the pace of grace. The ox knows the way to go. Knows when to stop, when to go. And because we're yoked to him, we can sustain. We are called to be yoked to Jesus. He knows the way. We follow in his way. It's what these next few weeks, this new series is going to be about. We're going to look at his way, what it means and how we follow in his footsteps. But in truth, we're not following in his footsteps. We're following alongside him. There's a word that that God gave to me, and I've heard it from two separate places in this last week. And uh, I had a meal with a couple in our congregation, heard it on Friday, and we heard it at the leadership conference a guy called Mike Todd, who, if you want to listen to great preaching, listen to Mike Todd. They talked about this word, striding, striding. To be striding as opposed to, I think, striving. My temptation is to step into striving, trying to make it happen. I do that not just here, I do this in my personal life, I do this in my own relationship with God. And as Brian said a couple of weeks ago, I, I can use my relationship with God to hide from God. We're not called to strive, we're called to stride. There is a way to live that is unhurried, that is free of striving, and that is full of life. And only Jesus knows the way. We as a church are committed to finding his way.